Well, guys, if uh, you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, you probably know that we've now entered what is commonly referred to as the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. See, in sports, they have what's called the, the Hall of Fame, which is like a list of people who've made significant accomplishments, whose names are very well-known because of how they performed or what they've done, and that's the Hall of Fame. And then, so in Hebrews 11, it's a, it's a big, long list of people who've had great faith, and so instead of the Hall of Fame, it's the Hall of Faith. You, you see, they both start with hall, and the second, letter is, uh, second word is of, and then, then they both start with fey at the beginning, so it's kind of a you see how they kind of borrowed it from that to, to label this the, the Hall of Faith. So that's the, that's the section we're in. And as the writer introduces us to this chapter, he begins with definitions of what even is faith, right? And so he gives basically three things that will show us definition of faith. So we're going to look at that. Then we're going to move into the power of faith and what faith does. And he uses several examples of men to do that. So what is faith? Well, the first thing he tells us in verse 1 is that it is the assurance of things hoped for. So think about something that's hoped for, something that hasn't happened yet but is expected to come. And it's this assurance, this belief that those things are indeed going to happen. That's what faith is. It's being assured or confident of those things. Then he moves on and says kind of the same thing in a different way. The conviction of things not seen. If you think of things not seen as things that might be questionable, things that we may not be fully convinced of, right? Because we haven't seen them yet, right? They're, they're not as sure, we're not as confident about them. But faith is that. Faith is what gives us the ability, or rather is the ability, to fully believe and rest in and be convinced of things even though we have not yet seen them. In Romans chapter 8, verse 24 Paul gives kind of a, a similar, not really definition, but explanation um, of what hope is. And he says this in Romans 8, 24. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope. We could say the same thing about faith. If something is, is seen, is readily evident and clearly um, recognizable and demonstrated to the human eye, um, that any physical person could see and recognize, that that's not hope for who hopes and what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And it's interesting that he uses the word patience there because the writer of Hebrews is making a similar point. If you recall back in chapter 10, he's talking about the need for perseverance, the need for God's people to keep believing, not just to believe once and then drift off into something else, but to remain in the faith, to keep believing. He's saying this, that faith is what gives us the ability to be, um, to persevere, to be steadfast, to continue on in the path God has called us to, fully assured and convinced that God is going to make good on his promises and that he is who he says he is. And so in this chapter, we're going to see that faith is celebrated beyond its ability to help us persevere, but that is a big part of it. Um, and so another Another way we could define this is in verse 2, which says it's our only path to pleasing God. Let's look at verse 2. It says, For by it the people of old received their commendation. Now, I mentioned earlier and explained at length why this is called the Hall of Faith. 
Um, but one of the things you'll see in Hebrews 11 is this, it is this list of, of people, mostly men and then one woman, who had great faith, and because of their faith, um, God used them to do significant things. But one of the things I want us to recognize is that this chapter is not about those people. It's not about Abraham. It's not about Enoch. It's not about Noah, right? It's not about Sarah. It is about the common thread in and among them of faith. And it is about not their power and their works, but as a testament to the power of faith. Because the one thing all of them had in common is faith and its ability to do great things. John Calvin had a quote about this, and he said this, However excellent were, their wor- were the works of the saints, it was from faith that they derived their value, their worthiness, and their excellence. The fathers please God by faith alone. And so I want us to consider verse, um, verse 6 in this chapter. So he's going to give these examples of what faith does, but verse 6 is another kind of example of him telling us what faith is. Look at this, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So we're given basically a a formula for how to please God. And it's two things. It's one, whoever's going to please God must, number one, believe that he exists. And we get that, right? Acknowledging the existence and the presence of God in Jesus and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And I want to camp out on that for just a second for, for really one reason. Because I've seen in my own life and I've seen the lives of other people. And I'm confident that it would be something many of you have experienced. That if you've been in church and following Jesus for a while, doing the church things, it can be very tempting and very easy, or maybe, maybe you've, Maybe you started this way. Maybe it's not something you've slipped into. But it can be very tempting and very easy to slip into a place where we see God as nothing more than an authoritative, universal deity, this being who very much has authority over us and very much has expectations of us and a prescribed list of things he wants us to do and how he wants us to live and then limit it to that. But what Hebrews is telling us is that if anyone's really going to please God, it's not just a matter of believing that he exists and doing the things that he has commanded us to, but pursuing him as our great reward, as our joy, as our source of fulfillment. And so I want to ask us just some questions to help us maybe look inside introspectively for a minute and help determine, do we truly seek God as a rewarder? Or do we just see him as this authoritative being to whom we must begrudgingly submit our lives? So is he a reward and a delight to you? Is God more to you than just a schoolmaster with a clipboard looking down and keeping record of all the wrongs and rights you have done? Is he the delight and the desire of your soul? Have you, like the psalmist, said and felt and meant that, yes, I have heard of the goodness of God, but I have tasted and seen it for myself? Have you ever been so enraptured and taken aback by the goodness of God because of your awareness of that, that you wish that moment could last forever, only to realize that one day, to your joy, it will? That in heaven, we will be fully aware of God's goodness and will experience joy unspeakable because of it? Is he not only the, the framework 
and path that your life is following, but the reward and the joy at the end of that path? Is he to you more than just a judge holding a gavel, but not only that, but a a loving father who is compassionate and kind towards you, who longs to be with you and spend time with you? Have you come to a point in your life that he is not just someone who ought to be obeyed, but that he is a vast mountain of paradise, joy and happiness that is accessible to you as you learn of him, think on him, and declare and express his excellencies in such a way that you are filled with delight and joy and wonder. And friends, if you would answer no to that, if you do not know God in that sense, I would encourage you, don't resign yourself to a stale knowledge of God and a life of boredom with him. But rather what God seeks is to you not just be a, not just be a chore or a job, but a delight and the desire and the pleasure of your soul. So ask and seek and knock that he might become such a God to you if that is not the case right now or never has been. That is what he desires. It's a faith of just stale boredom with God where you're following him out of a sense of duty without joy and delight in who he is is not the kind of faith that God wants for you and it will be of no benefit to you. So that's kind of an outworking of what faith is in this text. Now we're going to look at what faith can do. Because here's the thing, what we believe impacts our lives, right? It impacts everything about our lives. It impacts how we think. It impacts how we live. It impacts the decisions we make, how we see others, how we see the world around us. What we believe impacts everything. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that by faith, look at this list of people and how their faith impacted their lives and how God used them and what happened as a result of their lives because of their faith. That faith has the power to change us and those around us. So we're going to look at four examples of that. Number one, by faith, we can have a biblical worldview. We see that in verse three. It says, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So the word for this theologically is ex nihilo, that God made everything ex nihilo from nothing, that we believe as Christians that there was a point at which nothing was existed. A lot of, um, there's theories right there among those who don't believe in God about how the universe got here, how the world got here, how it came to be. And a lot of it derives from the idea of eternal matter. That matter, all the things you can see, touch, and feel, has just always existed from eternity, which is kind of an odd explanation. But from our perspective as Christians, our worldview says that there was nothing and God created everything. And it's from this idea that God created everything from nothing that we get our sense of everything that makes sense to us from the world. Our worldview, how we see the world is impacted by this idea, right? It's why we understand joy. It's why we understand things like family and relationships and happiness and the fact that we have a purpose, we have a mission, we have an intent by which we were made to fulfill certain things and to walk in certain ways as beings who were made in God's image as this crown jewel of creation. It's why we interpret suffering and we look at 
things like death and we say that is something that ought not to be. And a purely naturalistic explanation of the world would say death is just a part of life. It's as natural as eating and drinking. But we as Christians, because we know the truth, would say that, no, no, there's a reason that we kind of, we kind of wince at the idea of death. Because we know that it is something that ought not to be. And no amount of regularity of that, no amount of inevitability of that will bring us to a point where we say, oh yeah, death is just a normal part of life. No big deal. We don't operate that way. 99% of people don't think that way. And our biblical worldview tells us why that is. Number two, by faith, we can leave a legacy. Look at chapter 11, verse 4. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commending as righteous. He was commended, sorry, as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. So that's always been an interesting story to me, sorry, the story of Cain and Abel. Um, if you know that story back from Genesis, I'll just kind of paraphrase it. Basically the idea that you had these two brothers, Cain and Abel. Um, Abel was more of like a hunter, uh, herdsman type guy. Um, Cain was more of a guy that worked the ground, farmer, crops type thing. Uh, and it says that both of them presented a sacrifice to God. Abel presented some animals and Cain presented some of his grain. And that God accepted Abel's sacrifice while Cain's he did not accept. He was not pleased by it. And there's a hundred different explanations you could find about why that is. Maybe it was one was an animal and God you know, create, God wanted animal sacrifices from his people. There's all kinds of explanations. Um, and I've always been kind of tripped up by that about why, what was the difference here? Why was one accepted and the other rejected? And one of the advantages you may not know but about preaching at Crosspoint Community Church is that we have two people here who are professors at Dallas Theological Seminary. So I decided to email one of them. And I'm like, hey man, help me out with this. Like, what the heck does this mean? Uh, it was Brian Golf, And he wrote back and he said, man, it's, it's, one of the keys to understanding this is in the, um, the curious absence of superlatives in Cain's description. And after my head exploded and I put it back together, I was able to decipher what he meant by that was when it talks about Abel's sacrifice, the Bible gives a lot of adjectives, is a word I could understand better, um, a lot of description about how his sacrifice was the first among um, his flocks. It was included the fat portions. It was basically his first and his best that he had offered. Now, in Cain's sacrifice, the Bible doesn't explicitly say that Cain offered the leftovers, but those, those adjectives about first and best are lacking in his grain offering. And then you see that reflected in their attitude as well towards God and towards each other. So the general idea here is that Abel had a, a faith in God that as a result of his faith in God, allowed him and, and provoked him to offer to God his first and his best, whereas Cain did not. And if you know the story, it goes on to say Cain was jealous. And as a result of that, he ended up actually killing his brother Abel. So if you would look at that story from the worldly perspective and say Cain kind of won, right? I mean, after all, one of them was killed. He died while the other lived on. I mean, Cain kind of came out ahead in this deal. But the scriptures see it the exact opposite of that and says that at the end of verse 4, and through his faith, though he died, speaking of Abel, he still speaks. And what a great testament about someone that though he died, even though he's dead, he is still speaking today because of his faith. 
Think about that. It's so true. Thousands of years after Abel lived and had faith, even though his brother killed him, looked like his brother had won, thousands of years later, his testimony of his faith still speaks to us, is still being spoken of today. In that sense, through his faith, he lives on. And friends, we have the ability to leave a legacy of faith. Now, when we think of legacy, um, we often think of like values and things we pass on especially to our family or those very close to us. Um, you get to see some examples of this in, in the world of sports. And so I don't know if you about you guys have been watching the uh, NBA playoffs, not normally follow the NBA that much, but I've been watching it this year. It's kind of fun. And um, the uh, story, one of the stories they keep talking about back when the Lakers were playing before they got eliminated um, savagely is um, – LeBron James and how he's got a son named Bronny who's going to be entering in the NBA here pretty soon, most likely. And the idea that the two of them could be on the same team. And that's kind of a uh, image of legacy, right? Like, yeah, some of that is like his genetics being passed on, right? But a lot of it is his values and his skills. And I'm sure he spent time training him and things like that. And the Lakers staff are actually concerned about what could happen there because they're, I heard a, a report about this, they're worried that they might have to hire more staff um, if that happens because they'll need twice as many people to mop up the floor because of all the flopping um, if that happens. So that's the, uh, that's the kind of legacy LeBron James might leave that they're worried about. Um, but we all, we all have an idea of, um, of legacy, right? Things, values we might pass on to our kids. Here's the cool thing about this to me is that we have the ability, everyone in this room, has the ability, the capability to leave a legacy of faith. Think about Abel. Like, what did that dude really accomplish with his life? Well, we don't know, but it seems like not a whole lot, right? There's not a lot of accolades the guy has given. Other than he was very faithful in this offering to God. And then thousands of years later, that legacy, that story, that testimony, the impacts of that continue thousands of years beyond his life. And here's the deal. Think about all of us in this room. I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's very likely that very few of us will leave what the world would consider a legacy behind, something that endures beyond our life. When I think about that, I think of maybe a business, right? Maybe someone establishes or starts a business that then goes on, generation, generation grows, whatever. Or maybe a, uh, a creative type like a song or a book, or something composed or written that they would be talked about and reread or resung beyond that person's life. Most of us will not have something like that to claim that we put our stamp on that was a legacy that outlived us. But every one of us in this room has the ability through faith, because faith is so powerful, to make a bigger, deeper impact than any of those things could by passing our faith down to the next generation. You say, well, I'm, I don't have kids. What do you mean the next generation? Neither did Paul, okay? Yet he passed his faith down very much to the generations after him. Every one of us has the ability to do that in a powerful way. I think about my own story, where my faith came from. I don't know a whole lot about my great-great-grandparents, but I think back to my grandma, my mom's mom, very godly woman, um, raised five kids as a single mom and was known all around the, the town of Dumas as just a great woman of faith in the church, in the community. Um, and the fact that I have a sister 
who has been to the Middle East and spent two years there sharing the gospel, uh, making believers among people from a Muslim context who have little to no gospel access, and how those people heard the gospel because of my grandmother's faith that she then passed down to my sister. And friends, faith is powerful. That's what the author is saying, is that all of us, like Abel, have the ability to leave a legacy of faith that impacts those around us. Thirdly, through faith, we have the ability to please God. Enoch is the one given as an example here, which is crazy because we know so little about this guy in the Old Testament. But in verse, Hebrews 11, verse 5, it says this, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So why is Enoch listed here? We know so little about this guy. He's only mentioned in about three or four verses in Scripture. In Genesis, there's a few verses that mention him in a genealogy. But other than that, there's only one verse that really talks about who this guy was. And it's Genesis 5.24, which says this, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. But I think that's... Maybe why the author of Hebrews chose to focus on this dude, because he's such a simple, clear example of the power of faith to please God. Because he's saying, we know nothing about this guy and what he did. All we know is that he pleased God, which means he had to have had faith in God because he walked with God. And then God took him. God didn't allow him to taste death, but simply took him from the earth. And so faith isn't even mentioned here, but it's assumed Because the guy walked with God. He must have had faith in him. And that's all we know. But it's all it took for this guy to please the Lord. And I think that kind of begs the question, like, what kind of faith did Enoch have, right? Remember, this is like, Enoch, this is like way back. This is pre-Abraham, right? Pre-Noah. This is like way, 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 way back, this guy named Enoch. And so what was it about this guy's faith? that pleased God? What was so special or important about him? What was it that he actually believed, right? Pre-Moses, pre-Abraham, pre-sacrificial system, who was this guy? What was it that he actually believed in? Well, we don't know a lot about that, but we can look back to Moses and the sacrificial system and even ask the question there, like, How did these guys please God? Because we know on this side of the the cross, right, that the faith that pleases God, that God requires, is a faith in Jesus. So these guys before Jesus who were believing in the sacrificial system, what was it about their faith that pleased God? And I think we see the answer in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, and it says this. It's talking about Jesus, and it says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So it says because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. In other words, God looked at these men like Enoch who had faith in him even though it wasn't faith that was directed in Jesus God looked at these men like Enoch, knowing that they had faith, and credited them as righteousness, knowing that Jesus would come and die for their sins. 
And so their faith, though it was not placed in Jesus, it was still a faith in God's provision, God's goodness, God's graciousness. There was a commonality there that just like they had faith in God's graciousness and something they didn't quite fully understand yet, we now are saved by faith in Jesus through his work as a means of God's graciousness and love poured out through the cross. And then lastly, number four, by faith we can save our friends and family. Chapter 11, verse 7 says this, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. In reverent fear constructed an ark, why? For the saving of his household. Now I know that as I put a point like that on the screen, some of you guys may kind of raise an eyebrow at it, right? Like, well, come on, Kai, we can't. It's not our faith that saves anyone, right? Like, I don't have the ability by my faith to save someone else. Only God can do that. That person has to believe. But I don't want us to shy away from that kind of language because we do find it in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, I have become all things to all men in hopes that by all means possible I might save some. And I think by that, Paul doesn't mean that he has the power to fully save someone, right? We get that. But what he's saying is that by Paul's sharing the gospel, he has the ability to make the salvation possible and available and known to others. Just like Noah made possible a way for his family to be saved by building the ark. And there's so many parallels we could draw between Moses' ability to have faith and by doing so save those within his household to our ability to have faith, make it known, and by doing so, save those around us. Friends, our faith should impact those closest to us. I think, what if, what if Noah had taken on some of the excuses that we have in evangelism? I'm so glad Mike and Carla are teaching that class. I encourage any of you to go to it um, if you're interested in just learning how to get better at sharing your faith um, or just maybe overcome some obstacles and fears you may have in regards to that. Um, but if we draw some of those same lines of thinking we have in evangelism and think, what if Noah would have had some of those same thoughts, right? Like, what if Noah's wife came up and said, hey, you told the boys and their wives about the ark and the judgment, right? And Noah was like, well, I, look, they're, they're their own people, okay? I don't want to impose my beliefs on them, right? I don't want to I don't want them to do this just because I'm doing it and you're doing it, right? I want this to be their own decision. And so I don't want to get into like telling them how they should live their lives, right? That just seems kind of like crossing some boundaries there. What if Noah had said that? What if he'd never actually warned them what would happen if they did not get on the ark? I think the reason he did goes back to the definition of faith faith, this confidence and this assurance because Moses knew and fully had faith and believed that God was going to do what he said he was going to do, of course he's going to tell his family about that. And friends, we have an opportunity to impact those around us. And a big part of that is explaining and proclaiming not just the gospel that what Jesus has done, but the peril that awaits those who do not have faith. Much like in Noah's day, dreadful things await those who do not believe and trust in the promises of God. And we have the answer to that. And friends, I say that not as 
not as someone talking down to you, but as someone standing beside you in this. I've got, I don't have a lot of um, interactions and ability to, um, you know, run into people on a regular basis that don't know the Lord because of where I work and things like that. Um, but I have been talking to one guy who I feel like the Lord has kind of placed in my life as um, seeing that as an opportunity to share my faith with this guy. And I've even noticed in myself, uh, um, although a willingness and excitement to talk about the Lord and even the gospel of what Jesus has done and how that saves us and his work, um, but then a hesitancy to really look across the table at this guy and say, friend, if you don't get on board with this, your life is in peril. Judgment is coming. And only those who believe in Jesus will be saved from the wrath of God. I have a hesitancy to, to say that to this guy. And I'm not even sure really why that is. But when I look again um, at, at the example of Noah and think, what if he'd had that hesitancy, right? What if he'd, well, I don't, I don't want my sons to like think I'm crazy or something talking about God's impending wrath and judgment. Maybe I just won't bring that up. Man, what a cool example and encouragement to us to be confident enough in what the Lord has done and the promises of what's to come to boldly proclaim the gospel and the peril that's to come to those who don't know him. So I'm gonna leave us with that. It's just an encouragement to do so, to to go out and take this message and proclaim it to those who don't know him as a means of how to be saved from the wrath and the judgment that is to come. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for our text. Um, God, I pray that we would just see the opportunity here to have a faith that truly does change us, that changes how we live, how we think, how we walk, how we see others, how we interact with others, and how we share the gospel. Um, God, give us the Give us that faith and the ability to believe and be convinced of you enough that it would impact us in that way. In Jesus' name, amen.